Good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. If we haven't met before, I'm looking forward to helping us think through this passage. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you have revealed to us in Scripture who you are and who the Lord Jesus is and what your plan is for the future of our world, for the future of your people. Give us hope this morning as we look at these uh, chapters from Revelation. Give us hope that will sustain us as your people in, in this life, in this world that we must live. Amen. Well, I remember it well. I was in third year at uni, and I, I was taking some courses in philosophy. I thought that might round me out a bit. You know, I was doing engineering for most of my time. And one day the lecturer stood up in class and made this announcement. He said, if God is all-powerful, then he would be able to get rid of evil. If God is all-loving, then he would want to get rid of evil. But life is full of evil. Therefore, an all-powerful, all-loving God does not exist. Have you heard the problem of evil, as it's called, put like that or similarly before? I remember the kind of smirk on the lecturer's face when he, when he said this. He knew there were some Christians in the room and he thought his little argument would, would unsettle us. He was enjoying it. And as, as a younger Christian, it was a bit unsettling, to be honest. This, this does, can feel like a powerful challenge to Christian faith. Because we believe in an all-powerful, all-loving God, don't we? Can I just say, that this, this is not a new question people have put to Christian belief. People have been thinking about it forever. And if this is a question that you, you're really wrestling with, um, that, that, that's good. And keep wrestling with it and talk about it and come and see me if you'd like to. And I can point you in the directions to some great resources. People have been responding to this question forever as well. Uh, but it is a powerful challenge because we do experience evil and its effects, don't we? Evil doesn't just present an intellectual problem for us. How can a loving God, all-powerful God, allow evil? Evil is a real and personal problem for the world and for us. We, you, we look around the world, we do see evil everywhere. Whether it's the suffering and the injustice of wars and conflicts around the world, whether it's the suffering and injustice caused by corruption and the misuse of power, whether it's the suffering and injustice that comes to victims of violence or, or abuse, when we are hurt by other people's greed and selfishness. And we experience the effects of evil in all kinds of ways, other ways too, when, when our hard work comes to nothing and our effort is frustrated, when we are sick or in pain, when we grieve for someone who has died. These are all the outworkings of evil in the world. And we see evil in ourselves too, don't we? We, we, we snap in anger. We, we feel the pull of temptations. We know we're not as generous as we probably should be. We know the things we think and say about other people. Evil is a real problem, a huge problem for us, a problem that we feel personally and have to do battle with every day. But you know what? The, the answer to my atheist lecturer at uni, actually, is to say, the whole Christian message is God's answer to the problem of evil. Not just the intellectual problem, but the real problem. 
The whole Christian message is about how God is actually dealing with and will defeat evil. And the passage we're looking at today shows us this in a vivid way. The atheists think they can kill God with their problem of evil, but actually they, all they destroy is hope. The Bible this morning will give us hope. We will see what God is going to do about evil. These are my three points, by the way. Sorry I didn't get them on your outline. We'll see what God is going to do about evil. We'll see what he's already done about evil. And we'll see what he's currently doing about evil right now. So firstly, what, what will God do about evil? What will God do about the evil in the world? Well, there will come a day when he will destroy it. Completely, absolutely and finally. Throughout chapters 19 and 20, we have three scenes which picture the final judgment and destruction of evil. Each one ends with a picture of, of this burning lake into which evil is cast as a picture of final judgment. And I think these three scenes, which, which are in chapter 19, the first one's in chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, the second one's in the first half of chapter 20, and the second one's right at the end of chapter 20. I do not think we should picture them as happening sequentially, one after the other, but I think they are three different angles on the same events. A bit like when you're watching sport, maybe you're watching a game of soccer. I know lots of people here don't really love soccer, but you see this awesome goal, you know, someone slots it right into the top corner and beats the keeper, and then, then you see a replay, right? You see the shot from behind the goal, and then you see the same events happening from a different angle, and then maybe you see it in super slow motion, and then you see the shot of the same period of time, you know, on the, the coach's box, and you see the coach kind of going crazy when he sees the goal. It's a bit like that. These are different versions, different angles on the same, the same period of time, not a one-after-another sequence. And each replay ends in the same way with this lake of fire into which Jesus casts evil where it is finally and completely destroyed. You see, God actually really hates evil even more than we do. And he will destroy it. That is our hope. For a world without evil. But we'll hear more about that next week when we come back for Revelation's glorious conclusion. So let's have have a look at the first of these scenes together. Have a look at verse 11. Chapter 19, verse 11. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Who do you reckon this is? With justice he judges and wages war. This has got to be Jesus, doesn't it? His eyes are like blazing fire, And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. This can only be Jesus. And his name is the Word of God. Look down at verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Jesus. And he's glorious. And he will be victorious. He's coming and he's got his army and he's ready for a great battle against evil. Look at verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. 
So the, the stage is set for this kind of big epic battle between Jesus and his army and the, the beast who is Satan and his army. I think we need to notice something here. There's, there's a crucial mistaken assumption that is hidden in the atheist's problem of evil. And that is that that evil would be a, a trivial thing for God to simply remove from the world. But it's not. Evil is a formidable enemy. Now, it's not that it's, it's not that evil is any match for Jesus or that Jesus isn't up to defeating it. That's not what I mean. Jesus certainly will defeat evil, no doubt. But defeating evil and removing it from our world will not be a straightforward procedure. Because evil is a supernatural thing. It's not just the corrupt kings of the earth. It's, it's the beast who stands behind evil. To get our heads around evil, we actually have to talk about Satan. And the reality of Satan tells us that evil is actually pervasive and permeates through all of life and the world. The problem of evil assumes that God could just snap his fingers or wave his magic wand and remove evil, but, but it's not like that. Now, I, I know some of us have been at the doctor and have heard that absolutely dreadful diagnosis that it's cancer. And I, I, I realise this is a pretty real and raw illustration for us in, in light of Isaac's story, but, but surely all of us have had someone who we love who have heard the doctor say it's cancer. And when, it, when it's cancer, there's one, there's one thing you want to know, isn't there? Is it, is it operable? Is it the kind of cancer that can just be kind of cut off and thrown away? If you have to have cancer, that's, that's the kind you want, isn't it? It is so much more scary and harrowing when the cancer has worked its way in somewhere where the scalpel cannot go. Friends, evil, sin, is like that kind of cancer. Evil is not just some unwelcome appendage to life that God could straightforwardly slice off and discard. It's not like evil resides in a particular segment of the population who we could just simply lock up. It's not like evil resides in a particular set of ideas that could just straightforwardly be educated out of us. It's not like evil is just some limitation that we will be able to overcome with technology or something. Evil has worked its way deep down into the human heart and mind and soul. It affects everything, the way we relate, the way we think, the, the fabric and DNA of society and culture, even the natural world. It is a supernatural thing. Satan is behind it as he works his evil and destruction throughout all of life and God's good world. And that, that's where it gets really personal because evil has affected me, infected me. Did you notice who it is who is in Satan's army? Look back at verse 17. There's this extraordinary picture of birds of prey waiting to feed on the dead bodies after the battle. And look, who it, look who's in Satan's army. Verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings 
generals and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small, all people. Actually, no one is left out of these ranks. It's, it's all of us. It's me, it's you. It's you. This, this is where we are in our natural default state. We are on the wrong side. We're in the wrong army. That's, that's the human condition. When the atheists say, if, God, if God's all-powerful, then he would be able to get rid of evil, they should be careful what they wish for. Because evil is in me. Evil's worked its way deep down into me and my heart. And yours, too. Evil in our world is, is the kind of cancer for which there is no, no drug that will just fix it. No operation or procedure that will cut it. What we need as, as individuals, what, we, what our world needs, is a much deeper renewal. We need resurrection, actually. And that brings us to what God has done about evil, what he's already done. We've talked about what he will do. He'll destroy it finally and completely, but, the, but it's not all in the future. Actually, the work has already been done. I'll tell you something very interesting that I... I something I found very interesting about these chapters as I read them. In both the first and the second scenes, there is all this build-up and anticipation of an epic battle, but then the whole thing ends in a kind of anticlimax. I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf and the two of them were thrown in alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Where, where's the fight? Where's, where's the battle, right? If you were directing this movie, you wouldn't do it like that, would you? Well, look over in chapter 20, verse 8. Satan goes out and gathers a huge army for battle. In number, they were like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. It sounds just like something out of Lord of the Rings, right? And I'm expecting now a long and detailed action sequence. But what happens? But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Kind of just just like that. It's all over before it even starts. What's going on there? Well, I think the reason why the final destruction of evil ends up being such a non-event, such an anticlimax, the reason why when it eventually comes to it, evil dies with a whimper, is because the victory has already been won. On a cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and three days later in an empty tomb. Did you notice that other little detail about Jesus' robe in chapter 19, verse 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. That's his own blood. The blood of his death. What happened to Jesus? Well, the cross and the empty tomb. The cross where God himself, the only one who had ever been uninfected with evil, put himself in the hands of evil and experienced it at its worst. Only for that seeming defeat to be turned into a victory. Only for that seeming triumph of evil to be flipped into the condemnation and conquest of evil. 
only for his death to lead to that new, renewed, resurrection body. That was the moment when evil was dealt its fatal wound, even if its final death won't happen until the end. That was the moment, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was established as this victorious one. I have a trivia question for you, since we were talking about soccer. Which, which great footballing nation holds the world record for the most number of goals scored in an international game of soccer? Anyone know? It's, that's true. It is, it is not Brazil. It's not England or Spain or Germany. It is Australia. In 2001, Australia played Samoa in a World Cup qualifier. The game was held at Coffs Harbour. Uh, <laughs> what's the equivalent of Coffs Harbour? Are you from Coffs Harbour? It's, uh, it's a little tiny coastal town in New South Wales. And Samoa was roundly defeated 31-0. World record. At halftime, the score was 16-0. There was still a lot of game to play, 45 minutes. But I tell you, the match had already been won at halftime. And friends, we don't have to wait till the end to know the final outcome of the great battle of God versus evil. Because our world has already seen a resurrection. Jesus has conquered death and delivered Satan his mortal wound. And here is where it gets really personal. Because Jesus shares that victory of his death and resurrection with his people. When you or I, a Christian person, looks at the cross of Christ, we say, that, that ought to be me. That is what I deserve for my sin, for the ways evil has worked its way into my life and my behaviour. Death, judgment, that, that is where I should be, were it not for Jesus who went there for me. And we look at the resurrection and say, that is what is offered to me that new body and renewal and life that I so desperately need because Band-Aids and Panadol aren't going to fix me, that is what Jesus has now, now has and what he has promised to give me as one of his people. So that's what God will do in the future about evil. That's what God has done in the past. What about right now? What's God doing now? And this brings us to the meaning of the thousand years in Revelation 20. Let's, let's read it. Look, look at chapter, chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and, locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So we have this thousand years in which Satan is bound and in which Jesus reigns before Satan is released to be destroyed. And I have to tell you, this little passage has been debated about so intently among Christian people, scholars, and it's led to a handful of different passionately held theories about what will happen in the future and the timeline for the end and the final judgment. And does, does this millennium happen after Jesus returns in chapter 19, but before the final judgment? Or will it be before he returns? 
Now, I, I think this is an area where Christian people can and will come to the Bible, read it seriously as the Word of God, but come to different conclusions. And I think that's okay. And people in our church will come to different conclusions reading this, and that, that's totally okay. But I just want to tell you how I understand this. As I've already said, I think this is a replay, not of what comes next. I think we've seen that thing happen quite a few times in the book of Revelation. We're seeing another run of the big story of our world and history leading up to the final judgment. And the particular angle of this replay highlights what God is doing about Satan and evil now. We discover that he is bound. I take that to be that he has been bound or or constrained by the triumph of Jesus over him in his death and resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the first resurrection. Jesus is reigning now from heaven. That means we are living in this thousand years right now, in this period between the resurrection of Jesus and his second coming. Now you might be thinking, but Ben, we're already up to 2,000 years and counting. But if if this 1,000 is supposed to mean actually 1,365-day years, then that, that is the first number in the book of Revelation that we've read literally like that. that. That is not how this style of literature works. All the numbers in this book are symbols. And 1,000 years is an age, an era. And we are living in this age of Satan being bound. How, how is he bound? Well, in verse 3, it says that he's been limited in his capacity to deceive the nations. And what I think that means is that he... He's bound because of the spread of the gospel. We are living in the exciting age of gospel proclamation. This era of the spread of the gospel around the world, all all the nations of the world, as the gospel is preached. And as people hear it, God performs that miracle of overcoming our default unbelief, our default blindness, our deception, and he brings people to faith in Christ. And when he does, he brings them out from Satan's side to Jesus' side. Brings them out from Satan's army to to Jesus' army. He brings them out of Babylon into the people who are waiting for the new Jerusalem. He writes their names into that book of life in advance of the final judgment. That's what's happening. That's what's happened uh, wherever the gospel is going around the world. Satan is bound in his ability to deceive the nations. And here is where it gets really personal. Friends, if we are living in this thousand years, this window, this age, between the resurrection of Christ and the final judgment, then it it is a merciful delay which God has provided for you to hear and accept the message about Jesus. It's a window of opportunity which God has provided for for you to turn to Christ and become a Christian believer and by trusting him receive Christ's death and resurrection as counting for you. It is an age which will not last forever in which to ally yourself with Jesus so that you will be safe when the destruction of evil comes. So friends, if if you're not a Christian yet or if you're not sure if you're a Christian and maybe, maybe you'd like to have a chat about that with someone, can I urge you, don't, don't go home this morning until you've uh, spoken to Andrew or Roger or me or, 
or someone who you came to church with, just say, look, I'd like to have a chat about that sometime. Don't waste this time, this age we're living in that we've been given. It's a time for you to have your name written in the book of life. A time for you to be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. A time for you to join in that multitude who say hallelujah. It's a time for us to invite others to join, join the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's the age of gospel proclamation. It's a time for us to join the bride, those who are loved and cherished and protected by the risen conquering Jesus. Friends, we must not waste this time. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our great hope that one day you will destroy evil and remove it from our world, remove it from our hearts and bring about the new creation that will be free from those things. And we thank you for this time we've been given in which we can look back on the death and resurrection of Jesus and we can look forward to that day. And in the, in the meantime, we can respond to you with trust and repentance and receive the forgiveness and the new life that you offer us in Christ. Lord, please bring many to trust in Christ, many in Wellington. We pray as a church we would be faithful in declaring this gospel, this wonderful hope to anyone we can. Amen.